Good morning, everybody. It's good to see everybody this morning, uh, the people that we recognize as our faith family. Uh, if you're a visitor today, we're, we're glad you're here as well. Um, we are a, a loving body. I'm Brian. I'm the associate pastor here, if you're new here. Uh, I also work with the students. And I'm turning to the right page here. We're going to be in uh, Job 35 today and continue our sermon series that I've been doing sporadically on uh, Elihu, the fourth character in um, the book of Job. Before we get there, I wanted to ask you, what would you say if someone asked you what you like about your church? What do you enjoy about the church service? And or if you ask people about that, a lot of times they're going to talk about either the, um, the worship and song, or they'll talk about uh, the sermons they enjoy. I would add in our church, and in any healthy church hopefully, the, the, the prayers that are offered up. When it really gets down to the heart of it, um, it is a wonderful thing to really tune in to these um, lengthy prayers that we have. Uh, Jesus said, my house will be called the house of prayer, right? And that's what he really wanted. So those are three things that we emphasize here. We believe modeling after the New Testament church, the, the good things the New Testament church did, <laughs> um, is, is worship and song and preaching of God's word and, and, and praying to Christ. Um, well, hopefully you enjoy all three of those, right? Some uh, different than others. But last week we sang a song that expressed uh, a truth that was challenging to me. And, and singing is good because it, it combines the involvement of our body and our soul. As you are made of a body and a soul, as you listen to a sermon, it does especially minister to uh, your soul. But the songs we sing involve your body as well, and we're supposed to worship God, body and soul, as you stand up, as you sing, as you're active. We sang a song that, uh, as I understand it, is a, a modern interpretation, a modern hymn of It Is Well With My Soul, and uh, there's this phrase in there that says, the Lord has promised good to me. That's a challenging thing to sing and to believe and to pray. Why? Because there's evil all around us. There are bad things in each and every one of our lives. So how can we say and understand by faith and agree that the Lord has promised good things to us? Well, we look at what was preached last week or the week before from the Gospel of Mark, and we saw that none of you who have left family or fields or um, things or anything else will not receive more in this life, Jesus said. That was a promise that he gave us. But ultimately, there's this promise of good that he's given us in eternal life after this short life that we live, after this shortened life that we live. Um, God has promised good to us. But I want us to look at uh, Romans 8 briefly and understand this as, as Job is, is a s understanding what our sufferings is all about. It's an illustration of sufferings. But what is Romans 8, where we get that phrase, the Lord's promised good to us? What does Romans 8, verses 24 to 30, say about that before we get into Job today, and particularly Elihu? You can follow along with me in, in Romans 8. We're going to end up reading verses 24 through 30, with a little bit of explanation, maybe a little bit short. But I want to start in verse 18 simply by saying that Paul begins this section talking about sufferings. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory 
that is to be revealed to us. So he is talking about sufferings. Indeed, all of us go through sufferings. Some less that are more consistent, some that are are stronger forms of suffering that that maybe don't happen as often. Then we pick up in verse 24. He says, For in this hope we were saved. This is the hope of the gospel. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Here he's describing faith. Verse 25. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Some translations help us kind of imply that the Spirit prays for us when we don't know what to pray for. But I believe the implication here, and in the ESV gets it right, is that we consistently don't know what to pray for. That the Spirit is regularly praying for us. Even as Jesus prayed for Peter as he was going to be sifted by the evil one, that he would be restored. So in our weaknesses, God is helping us. He is praying for us, those of us who have the Spirit of God inside of us. And we should be encouraged by that in our sufferings. Verse 27 And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And here's our key verse for this particular song and dealing with sufferings. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. You can only know that by faith. For verse 29, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be to be conformed to the image of his Son. So this good that God has given us has first of all been predestined, and what is that good? What has been predestined to us? And that answer is to be conformed to the image of his Son. So we often think of predestination in the the context of our justification and our salvation. Here it's talking about you being predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, not only on this earth, but ultimately in eternity. And we struggle sometimes to understand how God has allowed this suffering to happen, an illustration which we find in the book of Job. But here, we are just told that we are predestined, that God has set things up for us. Now, the scriptures hold both true, that God has predestined things. He has set things up. He is in charge, but you also have a real choice to make in your decisions in life. First of all, for salvation, but also your daily life. And scripture presents both of those. And sometimes we struggle with how that plays out and how we understand it. But it is a mystery how that happens. But you do have a real choice and your decisions in life, and how we react to suffering. But at the same time, we submit to God and see, as we see in Job in the beginning, whose idea was it for Job to go under a trial? It's God's idea. Now, God didn't tempt Satan. Not at all. The evil one did. Job appealed to his own flesh and gave in to some temptations that we'll see today. But we see both of those as true in the scriptures. God is in charge, and you have real choices in this life. Uh, We see in Joshua chapter 24 that we are told to choose this day whom you will serve. Really, that can also be a daily choice, not that we get saved all over again. 
But we have to balance that out, and Job kind of illustrates that point for us. But ultimately, what we want is to be conformed to the image of his son. Now, let me encourage you, as you talk to somebody who's going through a trial, not to jump to this verse right away. Okay? We need to mourn with those who mourn. Don't just spew out, well, God works all things for the good. It'll work out. It's not a time for that. We don't know what's going to happen. It's a time to act like Job's friends the first week when they were with Job. What did they say to Job the first week? What did they do with Job the first week they were with him? Nothing. They sat there. They were there in presence. Hopefully, likely praying for him. And that's what we need to do is listen to people in those circumstances. So we see that the Lord has promised good to us, and that is to be conformed to the image of his Son, but that will also include suffering. God has not only promised us good on this earth, he has also promised many troubles and trials and testings and evil in this fallen world that we experience pain in, that we see in Genesis 3 from God's hand, we experience pain as a result of Adam and Eve's choice. They represent us, and we experience pain. That's a promise. And it's even gender-specific to a woman, pain in childbirth or rearing, I would even say. And they're reminded of that regularly. Even as a mother, is especially, her heart is especially torn when children get hurt or go the wrong way. There is a place for a father's love as well, but there will be a extra pain there, it says, in the curse for a woman. For a man, it specifically says, your pain will be in your labor and in your work, and we're reminded of that and the difficulties of working in what we call the marketplace, in the world. We serve lost people, and there is real persecution, there are real problems. And in fact, God even promised death. You could say, according to Psalm 90 that Moses wrote, that the average lifespan, it would be 80 years. Even 120, maybe the years from 80 to 120, I would consider almost overtime, extra time. They're a blessing. But this is God's will. These are just numbers in the Bible. There you have it. But today we're going to be looking at Job 35. That is in the middle of Elihu's speech. And I would say that it asks this question in summary of chapter 35. Do we humbly cry out to God our Maker for hope, comfort, and wisdom without anger or selfishness in our hearts? Let me repeat that to you. The question that Job 35 is asking is, do we humbly cry out, that is, pray to God our Maker for hope, comfort, and wisdom without anger or selfishness in our hearts? Let's start out by praying that prayer. Lord, we do answer this question by asking you to humbly help us. Lord, we first of all recognize that you are God, our maker. We worship the Lord who made the heavens and the earth. And you made me body and soul. And you saved me. And you saved your people. We have that sure hope by faith. We are comforted with your words and with the ministry of Jesus Christ. 
And we pray for wisdom and how to even pray to you. And we thank you for the prayers that you offer up on our behalf, Spirit. And we ask for your forgiveness because too often we pray with anger in our hearts and selfishness. And I pray today, Spirit, that you would use your word to work that out of us, to reveal sin and draw us closer to you and guide us in how to pray and to live effective lives for your glory. In your name we pray, amen. Amen. Well, today Elihu is going to explore the error in Job's prayers. It's not directly talking about suffering today. It's included, obviously. But today Elihu is looking at Job's prayers, and he's analyzing that. And we see that Job is crying out in the midst of his pain and frustration. Remember, he's not just talking about life. He's lost everything dear to him. He's lost his children. And he is very, very sick. His life is threatened and is uncomfortable. How many people are nice when they're in pain? That's a hard thing to do. And so let's sympathize with Job and recognize and identify with him how often we ourselves can be like that. We're going to look at uh, the entirety of this passage, but first I want to look at verses 1 through 4, and we'll look at four different sections of Job 35. Let's read verses 1 through 4. And Elihu answered and said, Do you think this to be just, Job? Do you say it is my right before God? that you ask, what advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned, Job would say. Well, I'm going to answer you, Job, and even your friends with you. So Job is here thinking he has a right before God. He deserves better treatment before God on this earth. Well, Job needs to first of all recognize that all things are from God's hand. One of the best things to tell somebody is something they've said themselves. They have to believe it. They said it, right? What, what, should these, what should Elihu tell Job here? Job, what did you say in the beginning? What was that? Naked I come from my mother's womb. Naked I, I, I return. I mean, to the, to the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Job was very grateful in the beginning. Now, he will end up grateful. But Job, what is it that you deserve? Well, we read Psalm 14, didn't we? And Job is acting like the fool who says there's no God. That he can't even see God. Where is God in this? He's acting like a fool. And Job, what do we deserve? Well, we're sinners. And here we have Psalm 14, which you recognize as being quoted as part of Romans 3. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. And so our salvation isn't as much moving from sickness to health. It's moving from death to life. And while we are given a real choice in our salvation... The scriptures explain that you are moved from darkness to life, and that is God moving you. Job needs to remember that Hebrews 9.27 says it is destined. He doesn't need to remember. We need to remember. He needs to know the truth of Hebrews 9.27 that says it is destined for man to die once, and after that, to face 
judgment. This is ultimately what we deserve. And therefore, every time we take the Lord's Supper, which we're taking today, we are grateful for our salvation. There's this reset as we renew that covenant with God. I don't deserve anything. And I have been given the greatest thing. In verse 3, we see that Job is tempted to despair. What advantage have I? How am I better off than if I had sinned? He seems to start to give up on everything. This past week, we gathered for an impromptu prayer meeting with the youth group and their families for EJ, whose parents named Emmanuel Jude. And the youth group and their families, we got together and we prayed and we're trusting that God is going to work in his life. And one student prayed that, that EJ's family and the Norcross family would not be given to temptation. And I'm thinking, we're gathering for comfort and for miracles. What, what are we doing with temptation? And the student prayed that they would not be tempted to despair. What a heartfelt, effectual prayer. Because in the midst of trial, isn't it easy to give in to all the thoughts in our minds, to give in to despair instead of trusting in God? It's really a prayer from 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul talks about us being a jar of clay that has a treasure inside of it. We have this treasure in jars of clay, meaning we've been born again with the Spirit of God, but we are weak in our bodies. And that weakness is there, he says, so that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. He goes on to say, we are afflicted in every way, not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair. And it's easy in the midst of trials to be given to despair, to give up. We need the prayers of the body of Christ. We need the encouragement of those who are speaking truth to us to not be given to despair. But not just giving up on that despair, but giving up on everything and giving up on God and then being tempted to give in to the selfish comforts of the flesh in the middle of a trial. Job is talking about giving in to sin. Forget this trial. I'm despairing. I'm going the other way. I'm going to give up on God. I'm going to get off this narrow path for a while. And then we start to see these things that often become destructive habits in our lives. The abuse of alcohol, sexual sin, gluttonous anything, food or the world, worldliness, giving in to anger or bursts of rage. And we can turn to Psalm 73, or you can just listen to this as a a key verse that helps us in our sanctification. And we can see here clearly when we're tempted to sin. There are some key verses that deal with our salvation in the sense of justification. Psalm 73 is a very important one for a believer and understanding the basics of saying no to sin and giving in to temptation and seeing evil for what it really is. We're going to end up in verse 17, but let me start with verse 1. Truly, God is good. That's the place to start. God is good to Israel, 
to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. And he starts to describe the way of sinners and how it's attractive. But then verses 16 and 17 say this, But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed a wearisome task to me until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. And this is the truth that holds us fast. This is why we hear the the word preached every week, because we tend to forget about what the benefits are of that narrow path. We tend to be narrow-sided. We tend to forget what the consequences of sin are. Until I entered the sanctuary of God, meaning the presence of God and the counsel of God, and catching a vision for God, which comes from his word. But let's never forget to look to Jesus, who is the author and perfecter of our faith, who never gave in to sin, who saw those temptations, who was tempted just like you and I, but never gave in to sin. In fact, we can say it was harder for him. He was tempted just like us, but we could say it was harder for him because he never gave in to temptation, not even once. The good news is is that the gospel tells us the truth of Jesus Christ and the salvation that is offered is that he forgives us when we fail, when we do give in to temptation, when we do despair. He restores us and he forgives us. But the gospel also, secondly, enables us to stay on that narrow path consistently. It does offer forgiveness. But he also enables us to not give in to despair and to say no to temptation, or to wisely not even enter into temptation, which is a lifelong journey. We then come to verses 5 through 8. And I've summarized this section by saying a quote from Psalm 8, which is, what is man that you are mindful of him? We need to have a humble disposition towards God. And here, Job is offered some correction. Starting in verse 5, Job, look at the heavens and see, and behold the clouds which are higher than you. If you have sinned, what do you accomplish against him that is God? And if your transgressions are many, what do you do to him? And then on the other hand, if you're righteous, what do you give to God? What does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness, it's going to affect you. It's going to concern a man like yourself. And your righteousness is going to affect other people, which is the meaning of this word son of man here. We have to be humble before God. You know, we do boldly approach the throne of grace, but as Jamie prayed, we do so with humility. This boldly approaching the throne of grace comes from Hebrews 4, 14 to 16. I want to read it because it's a summary of the book of Hebrews telling us that we have a great high priest and that we should boldly approach the throne. But you only do so with humility knowing that it is Christ who enables you to tread on that holy ground. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, that is our confession of faith, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, 
but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near the throne of grace. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Yes, we boldly approach the throne of grace. But Job is approaching the throne of grace with a little bit too much boldness, with a fist in the air at God, without humility, without humbleness. It's only by the blood of Christ that we can approach that throne. We're reminded of that today as we take the Lord's Supper, that blood representing his death and his resurrection. In verse 5, there's a solution to how to be humble. It's to look at the clouds, to look up. And it says it three times here. It says to look at the heavens, to see and to behold it. There's a major emphasis here, not just on a glance. And as one commentator from 1,800 years ago, Origen, one of the first commentators on the scriptures who has good things and bad things to say, but he said it's not just with your eyes to look up. It's with the eyes of your heart, as Paul prayed, that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened. To look up and behold God, not to look down and at your circumstances, He is higher than you. Where is your gaze? As we memorize God's word, as we hide it in our hearts. So important when you're younger so that you can draw on it later. So important now so you can draw on it in the future, even tomorrow. This is where the book is headed. God's four chapters in 38 through 41 are telling Job, you didn't create the clouds. You didn't create this world. I'm in charge. I am the maker. Elihu is here preparing us for God's speech to Job. In verses 6 to 8, we see that we can't affect God. We can't change God, whether you're sinning, whether you're doing righteousness. God is in charge, not you. If you sin, God's still God. You do righteousness, you're not any... Closer to God, you're still a sinner. God is in charge, not you. In verse 8, it says, If you sin, who are you going to hurt? You're going to hurt yourself. If you do good, who are you going to help? You're going to help others. You can't hurt or help God. He is God. He is self-sufficient. There's another key verse for our sanctification from the New Testament, and this comes from Acts 17. Buried in the middle of Acts is Paul giving a speech in Athens, in the Areopagus. Starting in verse 22 through 28 of Acts 17, you can just listen to this, or you can turn there, it's up to you. Paul is standing in the midst of the Areopagus, and he says to the men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. He's building a bridge. You're spiritual people. I talked to a man recently, he was in the dating world, and he talks to this girl, he's looking for a believer, and she, and he's, you know, and, so what's your belief on God and religion and Christianity? And she says, well, I'm very spiritual. Great, what does that mean? Everybody's spiritual. I'm going to tell you in a minute that everybody prays. What does it mean to be religious? Well, we know what true religion is, is to actually live it out to be unstained from this world, according to James 1.27. And it's found in Jesus Christ, who is 
fully God and fully man. Let's move on, though, and see in verse 23, he says, For I passed along and observed the objects of your worship. I found also an altar with an inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And that is the gospel. You see, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. He's moving to the God as the creator. Nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And that's the key verse. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need us. We need God. I may have told this illustration before, but it's so helpful for me. There was a, a missionary in Thailand when I was in Thailand in, uh, in college for a summer, he, he told the story of a neighbor's house who burned down. And going through a fire myself, when, you're, when something burns down, it's, it's so dramatic. You, know? you don't even know what's going on for a few minutes. You're just reacting. And this missionary's neighbor's house burned down. It's on fire. And his neighbor ended up making it out alive. And what did he have in his hands? His most precious things. What were his most precious things? Well, in Buddhism... There's a little section of the house that often has this, this place where they'll, they'll do their worship. I don't want to get into the doctrines of Buddhism and they don't, Buddha wasn't a god and their goal is nirvana, their goal is not to exist, but, but they do pray. And what did this, this Buddhist neighbor have in his hands? He had all his idols. What did the missionary say to him out of love? You know, my god saves me. I don't save my gods. And our god serves us. Yes, we serve him, but he serves us first. And really the direction of this entire trial that Job is going through is to see, as Paul learned, that his grace is sufficient. When we are weak, then we are strong. His power is made perfect in weakness. Paul asked for three times for that thorn to be removed from his side. That thorn, to be clear, was not sin was a weakness of some sort, some sort of trial he had to go through for his entire life. Now, there is no doubt that God answers prayers. We see in Joshua 10, where the sun stood still all day because of Joshua's prayer, or whether it was appearing as the sun stood still, maybe it was a solar eclipse all day. The interpretation there is, is kind of hard to understand. But Joshua was enabled by divine help, to fight all day. God answered his prayer. And it says there wasn't a day like it since or from where God answered a man's prayers. But God does interact with us. He does answer our prayers. He is interactive. We look in verse 8 and it says, Your righteousness is one as the Son of Man. That's what the ESV says. But the Net Bible says that when you do righteousness... You're blessing others. You're helping others, which is the flow of the context there. But I like the ESV because it says son of man. And that's a very important phrase because who takes on that title? Is Jesus. It was prophesied of him in Daniel 7. And Jesus takes up that title. And so while in the Old Testament it especially refers to mankind, here it's referring to others. We really need to interpret it in light of the Son of Man being Christ, because when he helps somebody else, 
when he helps humanity, when he helps God's people, it does make a difference for all of eternity. He is the Son of Man who is also the Son of God who saved us. And when he helps other people, he is saving them. And this is God working in our lives. We then move to the third section, which I've entitled, I don't know how that happened. Everybody prays in verses 9 through 14. Because of the multitude of oppressions, people cry out. They call for help because of the arm of the mighty. But none says, where is God my maker who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? There they cry out, but he does not answer because of the pride of evil men. Surely God does not hear an empty cry, nor does the Almighty regard it. How much less when we say that you do not see him, that the case is before him and you are waiting for him. We see in verse 9 that suffering is a cause to call out to God. And it is normal for people who go in some sort of a trial to call out to God. There is no doubt that EJ's family is praying, and we know it, we've prayed with them, and the Norcross family are, are praying for EJ as believers. But you find a, a lost person who, who isn't necessarily even religious, they would say, and, and their kids in the hospital, what are they going to do? They're going to pray. Now I realize that in the past 30 years, and let's just say the past couple hundred years, there's more and more people who are turning away from spiritual things. Even in Psalm 14, it says, the fool says in the heart, there is no God. But, but here it says that people cry out. One of my favorite movies is uh, about dealing with religion and science. It's a movie called Contact. It's got Jodie Foster and Matthew McConaughey in it. It's from the 90s. It's a religion and science movie. It's kind of philosophical, about two and a half hours long, rated PG-13. And uh, it has a little bit to do with aliens, so it's interesting, right? Now, there's no actual aliens in the movie. It's not like one of these weird sci-fi movies, right? It's a religion and science movie. And it's a, a very uh, special message in, in the middle of it all, is the world is deciding who are they going to have represent themselves to contact the aliens, right? So they have this, this court deal, this, this proceeding to decide amongst you know, these 10 participants, who are they going to do? And finally it gets down to these one or two people. And they reject Jodie Foster as the scientist because they ask her about religion. And she's like, no, 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 science can explain everything. And they're like, well, that's fine if you believe that, but statistically, 95% of the world, according to this movie, and probably back then, claims some sort of religion. You don't represent humanity. This is a very strong message. It's agreeing here that only the fool says in his heart there is no God. Well, by definition, you're saying there is no God. There is a God. You're saying he doesn't exist. Kind of proves that there is a God in a weird way. Well, what is the right way and the wrong way to pray to God? Verses 10 and 11 show us the right way to pray to God. But it does start out by saying none say this prayer. 
Just like Psalm 14 talks about none being righteous. If you can pray this prayer, it's because God has enabled you. It's because the Spirit of God has quickened your spirit. What should we pray? We should pray, Where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches us more than the beasts of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the heavens? This is where I get the summary of that, this passage. We should humbly cry out to God our maker for hope, comfort, and wisdom without anger or selfishness in our hearts. This is the right way to pray. What a beautiful prayer. Acknowledging God as our maker. Crying out to him for hope, comfort, and wisdom. And not following Job's example here, doing so without anger or selfishness in our hearts. What is the wrong way to pray? We see in 12 through 14. Well, to pray without faith, to pray with pride in your heart. I want you to turn to James chapter 4, where it very clearly describes a wrong way to pray. In James chapter 4, starting in verse 2 towards the end of it, it says, you do not have, first of all, because you're not praying. You do not ask. So the first thing is, which is convicting for all of us, what are things that we're not praying for? What things are we just keeping on our own backs instead of giving it to the Lord regularly? You do not ask, you do not receive. And then, verse 3, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. That's pretty offensive, isn't it? Asking God for something that you can spend it on your own passions instead of praying selflessly. James really gets at it here in verse 4. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell inside of us? These are very convicting words. Maybe reminding us of Jonah, who had good views of God, knew that God was slow to anger and abounding in love. But the desire of his heart was that those who he was preaching to would be destroyed. I like the abruptness that verse 6 offers, though. So abrupt, as if we need it very quickly. But he gives more grace. He gives us grace. God opposes the proud, but gives what to the humble? Grace. James starts out by saying in chapter 1, don't be surprised at the trials you're going through. And if you go through those trials of various kinds, you should ask God for wisdom and how to deal with them. And just because you're humble enough to ask for it, he's going to give it to you. This is exactly how chapter 35 concludes. That 
that demonstrates that God is slow to anger, abounding in love, even when we have prayerless prayers. Verse 15 says, And now, because his anger, he's slow to anger, does not punish, and he does not take much note of transgression, as Keith read from Micah that he passes over our transgressions at a hint of the the tenth plague and the, the Passover, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ as the Passover lamb. Now, because he is slow to anger, Because his anger does not punish, he does not take much note of transgression. Verse 16, Job opens his mouth in empty talk. He multiplies words without knowledge. Job is allowed to continue to speak because God is a gracious God. That even in our prayerless prayers, God is slow to anger, waiting for us, enabling us to pray another day. Paul says that the the clay doesn't say to the potter, what are you doing? These are sometimes the prayers that we have back to God. God, this trial should work out differently. And we can pray to God, but we better pray to him with humility, recognizing that he is our maker. I think that clays and pots are kind of confusing for us these days. We don't really use them. Yesterday, me and Natalie did a craft project. We made some crosses out of balsa wood. It was kind of fun. The first few of them turned out pretty messy. We only had one little bit of blood from the uh, little scalpel we were using. But you know what? None of these crosses said as we made them. Some of them were ugly. They, they didn't start, start talking back to us. They didn't say, you can't make me like that. You can't do this. When you draw a, a, a painting of some sort, It doesn't start talking back to you. Now, yes, we are animated objects. I get that. We have more that God has given us more. uh, We're made in the image of God. We're more than animals. But we're still not supposed to call out to him with a fist up saying, God, what are you doing? Yes, we are to call out to him, but call out to him as our maker, as one who gives us songs in the night. I heard a dear saint this week. I overheard some, some... uh, elderly lady talking to someone on the phone and she just said giving counsel to somebody she said just open up the psalms and start praying to God that's just what should be a regular pattern in our lives what does the song in the night mean yes it's on those sleepless nights but it means in the darkness of our lives God gives us those songs as we sing here every week as we are encouraged by the words as we are encouraged by those standing next to me singing and throughout this faith family, who will indeed then make us wiser than any of the beasts of this world. The conclusion of Elihu's speech, I want to just jump to that. We're going to cover chapter 36 next week. But the conclusion of Elihu's speech is 37.24, and he says, Therefore men fear him. Which is how the book begins, to walk in the fear of the Lord. There once was a man from the land of Uz, his name was Job. This man was blameless and upright, one who feared evil. Sorry, feared God and turned from evil. 
And we, he does not regard any who are wise in their own eyes. We need to humbly walk before God. And that's what our prayers should be. Would you pray with me before we take the Lord's Supper? God, we thank you for the illustration of James 4 in Job 35. We are given an example of how not to pray in the middle of Job's trial. Lord, I pray you would help each and every one of us in the pain that we experience in this world and in the trials to cry out to you as our maker with humility. To not cry out selfishly. But even though we would know the right we are to do and the good we are to do, that we would be more than just knowledge, but it would really affect our lives, that you would move in our prayer lives. God, we are convicted by praying selfish prayers. I pray that each and every one of us would learn what it means to pray in humility, to not be wise in our own eyes, and to submit to you as the one who is all wise. Lord, it is very difficult to do in the midst of our trials. But Lord, we are helpless. Lord, you are the potter and we are the clay. Please mold us as you would. In your name we pray. Amen.